Doctor, he told me what to do. He said that. They assumed that anyone religious would believe in this kind of ghost in the machine, soul sure. directing everything. I'm a total materialist when it comes to that. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is part two of our discussion with Chelsea Shield Strayer about the placebo effect. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, stop this now and come back when you've finished. Seriously. Here, I'll wait for you. And the ones that mother gives you Okay, welcome back again. Now, the reason I pieced together the clips that I did for this intro to part two, it's because I think it's really important to remember where Chelsea's coming from when she talks about witches and faith healers and the potential efficacy of essential oils and other forms of alternative medicine. I think for a lot of our listeners, this is where the science part of her research leaves and your skeptical, uh-oh, this sounds like metaphysical supernatural woo sirens begin to sound. But keep in mind, Chelsea is basing her conclusions on measurable scientific peer-reviewed data. And at some point in part two, I'm going to share with you a few clips from Dr. Irving Kirsch, associate director of the program in placebo studies at the Harvard Medical School. Now, Dr. Kirsch has some very interesting things to say about the ethics of prescribing placebos as an alternative to prescribing antidepressants. So you'll hear a bit about that as well. But again, I think it's important to remember that Chelsea, very much like Dr. Kirsch, is a materialist, 100% committed to the scientific approach. They're not saying that anything supernatural is happening here. It's all natural. And if I understand what she's saying, she doesn't believe in things like ghosts or spirits or souls or that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean that people who do have belief in those things don't actually experience real physical measured results in their lives. They do because of those beliefs, because of their expectations. So I don't think that Chelsea would be so strident as to dismiss all metaphysical supernatural phenomena as simply bunk, because the impact of that bunk is far too fascinating and important to sweep away. And for me at least, understanding this bunk and this placebo effect has really changed the way that I view my whole Mormon experience. And we talk about this a little bit to wrap up part two. So I hope you enjoy it. And let's pick up where we left off with Scott asking Chelsea to explain more about placebos and the relationship between belief and expectation that makes them so effective. than it is to actually alter your behavioral like script. So Chelsea, I've got this question on placebos, and I think you're the perfect person to answer it. Um, What is the role of the belief 
in the effect of the placebo in terms of its effectiveness. Okay. So like, so if I take a placebo, I'm a skeptic. If I take a placebo or if I were to engage in some, any, any one of what you would call a placebo practice, um, would the effect on me be different than the effect on someone who's, you know, my genetic clone or my as similar biologically as they could possibly be to me? Because I think, uh, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but placebos can affect some people more than others. Uh-huh. And maybe there's biological underpinnings for that. But take that out of the equation. It, is the fact that I believe it's going to work, is how, how important of an aspect is that in its efficacy? It's an enormous, enormous factor in efficacy. But I would change the word from belief to expectation because it's the expectation of what will follow, whether it's positive or negative, and it's specific to the expectation of what will follow. It's a predictive response that changes that physical state. First, I just want to define placebo for everyone. I was going to say that, you know, everyone thinks they know what it is, but people often don't. So most people think when I say placebo, it's, oh, well, it's all in someone's head right? I give someone a sugar pill. They think it's something else. It's all in their head. And, you know, it's not a real thing. The the real reality of a placebo, and there's something called opposite. It's called the nocebo. It's the negative form. And I'll explain that in a second. But the real reality is I'm having a biochemical physiological change occurring. But the difference is There was an active medication given to me or an active trigger or an active surgery. It was an inert medication, an inert surgery. So instead of giving someone, you know, a pill that we've proven through FDA random controlled trials is super active, I'm giving them a sugar pill. Instead of doing a knee surgery that actually repairs, you know, the tendons that have been damaged, I'm literally just drilling holes into their knee. I'm doing nothing else. So can, can I ask so, a, a clarification there? So mm-hmm. so with a placebo, the the active element is expectation of the person who's who's receiving it? Well, there's about 18 different types of active um, okay. ingredients right. in a placebo. So it's not just expectation. Right. There's condition responses. There's desire reward sequences. There, you know, it gets really complicated. But the, the whole key to placebos is understanding that a physiological response, a physical response is happening. And sometimes it's as, you know, mimicked, as similar as if you're having an active medication, so your response to an active medication is just the same as your response to a placebo, sometimes it's stronger, sometimes it's weaker. You can actually dose placebos. It's a fascinating process. So the key here is understanding that there's a physiological change happening. It's just that the trigger is not an active chemical. It's a social or psychological trigger that then causes the chemical response. So why that's important, and I'll give you just a couple case studies, is I can actually um, give someone, what's the strongest drug you can think of, a Vicodin or a Lortab? And we can give someone, we have trials that show this, we can give them a Vicodin four days in a row and test their biochemistry. On the fifth day, we can test them with a placebo, you know, a sugar pill, and they will have the exact same objective measurements as if they've been given a Vicodin. Their body will reproduce the chemicals, start the chemical processes, the, you know, metabolism, etc. as if they received an active medication, even if it's a sugar pill. Is, now, that, cate- I, is that categorically or is that in the you know, majority of cases? Or? Different, different drugs have different placebo rates. 
psychotropic drugs, which deal with more mental illness, more types of things that are more susceptible to environmental factors, have higher placebos. Things that deal with um, more you know, infectious disease, viruses, bacteria have really low placebo. So it depends on the type of, of pill. Some that are opioid restrictors. Um, have really, really like non-existent placebo effects. So it does depend on the type of medication. It's a continuum. The point being that we can actually dose and dope placebo effects, that there's an actual chemical response. So in that case, the person I was asking about expectation, in that case, the expectation and the predictive response of what I'm used to receiving with a Vicodin is what actually caused you know, the predictive, you know, your body will start metabolizing and thinking about the pill and changing its chemistry before you even, you know, swallow, before it even starts to dissolve in your blood system. So that whole process is starting um, beforehand, you know, regardless of the active chemical. Now, it doesn't happen two years later. In fact, you know, the second day it's not as powerful, the third day it's not as powerful, the fourth day it doesn't work. So there, there's ways to deal with this. And, and sometimes it gets exciting, you know, the, the latest research, and you guys will all love this, where people are really taking this stuff and applying it is actually in sports doping, that they're kind of doping um, athletes beforehand. And then on the actual day of the race, when they're going to get tested, they give them a placebo. And then this person still will respond as if they're being doped. And even though their chemical, you know, their physical body reacts as if they've been doped, they don't actually, um, you know, measure for the chemical. And so they actually are okay by the um, standards of, you know, the athletic standards. So there's fascinating things that people are doing with this research right now. I think the thing that's important as an anthropologist is that, you know, in the medical world, people hate this stuff. They hate that, like, you know, their drug trial takes seven years to get approved because placebos are so damn powerful. Um, In the cultural world, we think it's fascinating. We think it's fascinating that your culture can construct a world in which you believe, actually, I should say, expect a certain physical response and your body will will respond predictively as if you've been given it. And that's a cultural construct. Right, and that's why they call it the placebo effect, because there is a tangible effect. Right. When I told my son that uh, uh, I was going to be speaking here, he asked me, what kind of uh, talk are you going to give, Dad? And I said, well, it's going to be a placebo talk. This is Dr. Irving Kirsch, Associate Director of the Program in Placebo Studies at the Harvard Medical School. And this is a presentation he delivered in May 2012 at the Congress for Integrative Medicine and Health. And he said, well, is it going to be a real placebo talk or are you just going to pretend to speak and see if anyone hears you? I told him it was double blind and I wouldn't know until I was debriefed. I love the placebo effect been a passion of mine for my entire career. I have to say that I'm addicted to placebo research. I've tried to kick the habit. I even joined Placebos Anonymous, where the first, the first step was to admit that I really didn't have a problem at all. He's a pretty funny guy, huh? The uh, title of my talk is uh, Placebo Therapy is an Ethical Alternative. And my thesis will be that giving a placebo may be more ethical than giving an active treatment in some cases in both clinical trials and clinical practice. And I'm going to illustrate that um, with a risk-benefit analysis of antidepressant 
medication. Now, why did he choose antidepressants to focus on? Well, the answer could be summed up in one simple word, hope. What we were interested in, it seemed to us, it seemed to us that there must be a good-sized placebo effect in the treatment of depression. Why? Because a core feature of depression is a sense of hopelessness. And so if you give a treatment that instills the hope that one is going to recover, that ought to counteract the depression. It's hard to think of a successful treatment for depression that wouldn't at least have as a component instilling a sense of, of, of hope. So regardless of what their healthcare professional prescribed to them, the hope they have to get better should, all by itself, according to the placebo effect, be able to demonstrate some catalyst for change, with or without the prescription of an active medication. Now that sounds reasonable, right? But if you're going to make a claim like this, you better be able to back it up with some good, sound data. So in 1998, Dr. Kirsch and his team looked at the published clinical trial data from pharmaceutical companies, and they measured three groups, those who received the drug, those who received a placebo, and those who received no treatment at all. Now, the results of these patients were measured with the standard mean difference from a baseline of zero up to an improvement of about 1.6. And the drug group won the gold medal, showing the most improvement at just under 1.6. Uh, the placebo group, they won the silver medal, improvement around 1.2, while the no-treatment group got the bronze at a lowly 0.4. Now, here's what that told Dr. Kirsch. You give someone an antidepressant drug... About 25% of the change you get would have happened even if you had done nothing at all. That's due to the passage of time, the natural history of depression, statistical artifacts like regression to the mean, and so on. You give them a placebo, that counts for another 50% of the drug effect. Good, that's what we were there to evaluate. That wasn't a surprise. What came as a surprise to us was that left only a 25% drug effect. And that seemed, I mean, half the size of the placebo effect, that seemed very small for a treatment that had revolutionized the treatment of depression. So basically they said that the drug impact was not significant enough to justify the risks associated with taking a drug when 75% of the improvement could be gained using just a placebo without the potential of pharmaceutical side effects. Now, this first study, it really just started the ball rolling. And if you'd like to listen to Dr. Kirsch's entire 30-minute speech, we'll provide a link for you here on our website. But let me just cut to the chase. The risks associated with the drugs include sexual dysfunction in 70 to 80% of the patients, weight gain at 25% risk, insomnia at 20%, further withdrawal, including sadness, irritability, and increased anxiety at 20%, a 62% risk of suicide in children and young adults, a 90% increased risk of birth defects for women who take the medication in the first trimester, and a 280% increase that the child will be born with autism. And what may be the most depressing statistic? a 124 to 288% chance of relapse. So Dr. Kirsch asks the question. So what about the ethics of placebos and clinical trials of antidepressants? It's ethical to give patients placebos. There's no deception. Patients improve almost as much on placebo as they do on the active drug. 
And there are a few side effects. No question about that. The question is, is it ethical to give them the active drug? They show little, very little benefit beyond that of placebo, but they have serious side effects. They have the risk of becoming dependent and showing withdrawal symptoms and increased risk of stroke, death, gastrointestinal bleedings, birth defects, and relapse. So, yeah, I would say it's more ethical to give people placebo in a clinical trial of antidepressants than it is to give them the new antidepressant. What about clinical practice? After all, here we have this treatment. Works almost as well as the best drugs we have. Doesn't have the side effects. That'd be great. Of course, conventional wisdom is that placebos won't work without deception. People have to think they're getting an active drug, right? But is that conventional wisdom right? Well, you know, for years, I can't tell you how many years, Ted Kapchick and I were talking about we've got to do this study. We've got to do this study. And we finally did the study. And what was that study? Well, they targeted people this time with irritable bowel syndrome, and they reached out to find some willing patients to enroll in their study. We, we put out an advertisement for a, a novel mind-body management study of IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And when prospective patients called in, they were told that the study involved placebo inert placebo pills, which are like sugar pills, and which have been shown, however, to have self-healing properties. Would you still like to come in? And when they came in, they had a meeting with a physician who explained to them that the, that the, the placebo effect is very powerful. And the body can automatically respond to taking placebo pills, just like Pavlov's dogs responded to, 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 with saliva when they heard a, a bell. And a positive attitude is very helpful, but it's not absolutely necessary. What is critical and important is that you take the pills faithfully as prescribed. And then they were randomized into two groups. One group was given placebo pills in a bottle, clearly marked placebo. <laughs> No active ingredients. Take with a grain of salt. No, it didn't say, <laughs> it didn't say the last part. He made that up. Or they were in a no treatment control group where they had the same amount of time and attention. I think they got an educational program. No placebo pills. Same amount of time and attention with a caring physician. Well, they found that those on the open placebo and the education program showed a 92% reduction of their symptoms compared to a 46% reduction for those with just the education only. So to answer the question, is it ethical to prescribe placebos in clinical practice? Well, Dr. Kirsch would say resoundingly, yes. In some cases, it could be absolutely the most ethical choice. And again, if this interests you, I would encourage you to click on the link on our website and watch Dr. Kirsch's presentation along with the slides that he showed to his audience. But it's clear, Dr. Kirsch believes in placebos. And Dr. Kirsch has a dream. That some morning I'll wake up and I'll learn that the FDA has approved placebo antidepressants in doses ranging from 1 to 40,000 milligrams. And then I think, you know, if we can prescribe placebo, that means we can also advertise it. And I wonder, what would a placebo advertisement look like? Prevaricane, a genuine placebo medication. 
tested in more clinical trials than any other treatment. So powerful, it's the standard by which all other medications are tested. So effective, it's used in the treatment of thousands of ailments. And it's safe enough to be given to infants, the elderly, and pregnant women. Remember, if it's a placebo, you can believe in it. Right, thank you. And it's a problematic word, right? Because placebo means nothing. It means inertia. It means nothing. It means that there's no power. And yet there's an effect to something without any power. <laughs> so, you know, it's a problematic concept. What people don't realize is that there's a nocebo effect, that you can actually cause a negative response in someone's body. I can give you a pill and tell you the side effects, and I can actually put it, you know, I can say this pill will give you ulcers and put a camera in your stomach and watch an ulcer grow from a sugar pill. I mean, you know, it's just as powerful on the negative, and that's one of the reasons we actually have ethical standards by which we, we try not to, you know, trigger this nocebo. It's called nocebo effects. So, for example, when you get a prescription at your doctor, they don't always go over every single side effect. They're legally supposed to, and they do, but they do it really quick, and they don't get into it very heavily. When you go to your um, pharmacist, they will often give you a piece of paper and say, do you have any questions, rather than reading out loud the side effects. Because what happens is if you tell someone there's a side effect, they're going to expect and look for and actually exacerbate that side effect. I guess that's kind of what I was trying to more talk about when it, when I was talking about the the gluten is the is the perceived I guess the nocebo effect that people are feeling the effects of that if they believe they consume that that that's a real thing and that that's been studied as it pertains to gluten. Absolutely, and I try to tell people this no. often that the, the the study of placebo and nocebo effects has often been constrained to the medical world, and this is why I love coming at it from a biological anthropology perspective. Is our ability to be susceptible to those external triggers did not start a hundred years ago when allopathic biomedicine began, right? Like our ability to be susceptible began much longer. Our physiological bodies are susceptible in a million different ways outside of biomedicine. So we can be susceptible physically in a spiritual setting, in a religious setting, in a concert. Every one of us has gone to a concert that we feel like we're in a trance state, right? Where we feel amazing. Every one of us has experienced something socially that has hurt us to the bone. And we feel physically Sick. And so I try to explain to people that this ability to like alter one another's physical state is not restricted to the medical world, right? It can, it can happen through our diet. It can happen through our social relationships, our religions, um, music, etc. So I want to turn this to Mormonism somehow. <laughs> or just religion generally. Let's talk priesthood blessings. No, Let's talk priesthood yeah. blessings and then move yeah. from there. Let's do it. Let's do it. I mean, go ahead. I just think the priesthood blessing, and I haven't studied this at length. I think it's an interesting thing maybe for the future. Um, I often say this, and Scott heard this this weekend, is I will teach the exact same class on like the evolution of the body or religion or the brain. And I'll have one student leave my class and say, wow, you just proved that God doesn't exist, that it's all materiality, that there is no such thing as spirit, that, you know, that God doesn't exist, and he'll leave the classroom, and I'll have the same class, another student come up and say, you just proved that God is such a genius, 
that this is the means by which he works. You just like proved that God is amazing, right? So, so the, the presence of God is less, um, critical to me as the process. So when I talk about priesthood blessings, I don't want any listeners to feel like I'm saying, well, here's how it works physiologically. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And I actually don't know whether or not he exists or she, but I think that the process is fascinating. You can leave this discussion thinking, oh my goodness, the Mormon God who works through natural means actually constructed something like the priesthood blessing to affect the placebo right, you know, the placebo response in the highest fashion possible. It's actually an ingenious um, way of kind of extracting a positive or beneficial placebo response from someone. And so, you know, your listeners can leave thinking, wow, the more, you know, our God knew what he was doing when he did this. Or you can leave saying, well, this is why I've experienced positive blessings in my life and it has nothing to do with God. So you can take think that would be a great spin for a believer. I like that a lot. Right, right. <laughs> but I, see, like the issue that I take with that, though, is the getting back to what you said before about belief. So so if it were God that was doing it, would God care if I believe that the blessing is effective or not? Yes, because if, it's always based upon your faithfulness, oh, God. Right. I guess, I guess <laughs> well, that's, not, yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah. out, Matt. You got me. <laughs> it is an important question. What I'm talking about is our listeners, not the person receiving sure, it. Sure, sure, sure. I know. I just had to throw yeah, that in there. The person receiving the blessing, it's absolutely, we call it, we call it in, the, in the field of placebo studies, we call it verbal dosing. So you can actually dose how effective a blessing is dependent on the level of the person's expectations and dependent on the skill of the practitioner. So there is a way I can like teach you a way to have the ideal patient and the ideal practitioner and have the most effective priesthood blessing possible. Right. Um, But you'll only do it if the church gives women the priesthood. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this is why she wanted to be an elders quorum. <laughs> right, yeah. Right, right. I'll I'll hold that hostage. No. Yeah. I'll teach everyone. I you know, here's where it comes down to my personal life. Oh my goodness. If I could teach a doctor how to, you know, make a patient's experience be ten times better and have recover ten times quicker and have the pill work ten times better, good night. I would love for that to happen. If I could teach a Mormon man how to come into someone's home and give him a blessing that makes him feel better today, man, I would love to do that, right? So I think this is all exciting stuff. I'm very optimistic. What what, what about children? Like when you're giving a blessing to a child who's not quite at the age of being able to have expectations, are, are, have there been any type of studies done to demonstrate uh, effectiveness there? Interesting. So there haven't been a lot of human development age-based placebo trials. That's a very fascinating question. Um, I I do hold a little bit of, um, you know, um, opposition to the idea that children don't have expectations. Um, We we develop enormously strong expectations as a yet really young age, and sometimes children in their black and white thinking stages have actually stronger expectations that adults who understand the world is more gray. So um, that would be an interesting study. Um, And so I don't have a good question for you other than just to say that children can have really powerful expectations because they don't know how to doubt. Infants and toddlers, but, uh, but um, it's a similar experience with like, um, we have some equine studies, some animal studies with placebos um, where that would be. I thought you were going to say priesthood blessings. 
A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. A. You know, it's a similar problem, right? If we're st if we're doing a placebo on a horse, clearly right. they're going to have less types of you know social triggers, expectations, and things. Do we still see a placebo effect? So there's been a lot less studies on those types of populations, <laughs> um, but it does show, from what we see, it does show that the richer your understanding of your social world and your expectations of your practitioner and the result of the trial, the bigger the placebo effect is. So, and that's what's so genius about a priesthood blessing is it's heavily reliant on the patient's faith that it will work. So patients experiencing the placebo have every incentive in the world to believe that it will work. And so whatever the doctors, whatever the priesthood um, holder says, they will often, um, take, you know, extremely to heart. They will often think that, you know, give a lot more power and credence to the words than would otherwise be said. Um, they try to have as much positive expectation and faith as possible because they believe the weight is on their own shoulders. What's cool about priesthood blessings and Mormonism in general is we have a lot of rituals that have what we call polysemous meaning, which means that you and I can read the same scripture and we believe that it's okay for me to get something out of it that applies to my life that's different than something you got out of it that applies to your life. Now, that's not the case in every religion. And what that does for us is it allows us to actually extract, and you would love this as a folklorist, but it, to actually extract the greatest meaning possible and applicable to our own lives. And that actually has greater placebo effects to do that. So, you know, it, our, our priesthood blessing, the structure of it, no, you know, you usually know the person who's giving it to you. You usually trust them and love them. Usually, actually, they have usually a position of authority over you. Um, they're usually trusted in your community. They've proven that they're worthy. That's a huge thing. Not every healer has to go through a worthiness test before they can heal. Even our doctors, you know, they have the medical degree and the white coat. In Mormonism, we have the garments and we have the, you know, taking of the sacrament and our priesthood calling. So we have these great... Um, symbols of authority to rely on. So, so breaking apart the placebo, sorry, the priesthood blessing, um, it is an enormously efficacious model or ritual for extracting the placebo effect. Yeah. And then what, what's the nocebo effect with the, the priesthood blessings when, you know, you've got the, the mother dying of cancer that gets the blessing that she'll live and then she doesn't. With, with, you know, one of our, our, our good friends and panelists, uh, that happened to him in his life. Is that, would that be equivalent to a, a well, I guess it wouldn't be a nocebo because that, right. that's, that's okay. suggesting that the blessing actually in, introduced something that had, had a negative chemical effect, right? Right. Okay. I wouldn't call that a nocebo. Yeah. What I would call a nocebo is maybe someone's patriarchal blessing. Uh -huh. Maybe someone's patriarchal blessing said something like, you know, you're going to marry a righteous RM and have lots of children someday. Let's say this woman is single. Okay. She now, and, and this does, has less to do with physical than social, but sh this woman will now not date non-Mormons for the rest of her life because this blessing said this thing. 
And so she's actually conscripted her whole life around this one line of this patriarchal blessing that she believes is true and she's put all her faith in. Um, and she might live to old age and be single and never have children, but she would have never looked outside her options because that's what that said. Now, that's not as physical, but it's more of a social nocebo where we're actually limiting the choices of our life based on this kind of prescriptive um, ritual we've received as a young child. I got a blessing nocebo for you. We had uh, a missionary used to always bless people uh, to be healed unless they were breaking the word of wisdom. Then they would continue in their sickness. Wow. And so people wow, who would drink, yeah. people who would drink tea, for example, would continue. That we we would see that, and we'd, we'd always tell us, "See, it's because they're they're drinking tea and they're smoking." It's a brilliant story. And in fact, you know what, the traditional healers I work with use this, no, I wouldn't say tactic, but they, because it's not something people consciously are trying, you know, this wasn't something a missionary consciously tried to do to get people to be more in right. life. This is what he genuinely believed, right? I don't right. think he was being facetious in this. He was being manipulative. In, right, sir. Certainly not but, malicious, yeah. But, but I mean, and he was being manipulated, but I don't know that he was. I, I think we've all done something like this where we're not conscientiously trying to be manipulative. We genuinely have this belief, right? Um, so I see this a lot in healers. So I'm very careful not to assign um, maliciousness to people and just assume that they are genuinely believing, you know, even though I know that's not always the case. But, uh, you know, I don't want to be. Uh, I'm not there. I'm not them. I feel, you know, disingenuous to say such. But that's a brilliant example. And I have healers that use this all the time where they say, you know, you are healed, but you owe X, Y, and Z. You have to do this and this and this in the future. And if you fail, your disease will come back, right? And if you don't, if you get better or your business grows and you don't give us a percentage, you know, a retroactive percentage, then something terrible will happen to you. So what happens is when that guy that has this great business and he, you know, he forgot to give 10% back to that healer that 10 years ago said he'd succeed, and then he gets in this car accident, or then he suffers a major disease, or his kid, you know, goes through something terrible, he thinks, oh my gosh, I never paid them back, and he shows back up and gives them money, right? So we see a similar type of process that this will work, but only if you do these really rigid standards that you might fail, and then the reason why it didn't work is your own fault. So, Matt, I got a question for you. You, you. you released an episode a couple of weeks ago on uh, sacred experiences where you talked with Kristen about some things that happened in your life. D- does this discussion make you look at any of those any differently or does it have no impact? No, I, but those were the – what this does is clarify the position that I had before because yep. I, I used to – I had already kind of drawn the conclusions that the answers to prayers that I had gotten – was I mean I, I call it more of a I guess like a self fulfilling prophecy, but something that um, I expected. Um, so yeah, I mean I think I I I, I kind of uh, understood them in different terms. Maybe it's being articulated a little more clearly. Well, um, one of the things through what Chelsea yeah, doing. and one of the things that that you talked about, and I is we hear in in the church all the time is to. What's what's the wording meant? To, to think it out in your mind ahead of time, what it's going to be. You know, come to the conclusion. Study it, study out, in it your out in your mind. Yeah, but have it have a decision made. Right. Your conclusions made. The answer is set, and then ask for confirmation, right, right. not ask for the so, question. So you've you've done the mental work of setting up your expectations 
uh, right there. D- d- does that sound familiar or, or, or applicable at all, Chelsea, to, to uh, your placebo effect? Absolutely. Okay. It's genius. Yeah. I go back to the idea that, like, that this <laughs> way of dealing with this ritual or dealing with this religion, the way we've constructed the narrative, and I say we constructed, I mean we can break that apart, but the way the narrative has been constructed is enormously efficacious. To, to continue affirming kid, itself. Yeah, right. right. And when I was a kid, we would do this thing, and I was taught this in seminary, right, where we would just open up the scriptures, and whatever it landed to, we'd read that scripture and see how it applied to our lives. Now, what we would call that around the rest of the world is called book divination. It's the idea that right. you just, like, turn the page <laughs> and divine from words something that's completely out of context but that applies to your life. And I did that all the time, and I got lots of answers to prayer because I believed that God was leading me to that specific verse and chapter. So, isn't, yeah, that, isn't that Moroni's promise in a nutshell? Right, right. So why would you go see a hypnotist instead of getting a personal psychic reading? <laughs> Um, only because hypnotism has a lot of um, physiological efficacious uh, studies. <laughs> like it's actually positively studied to be proven um, very helpful um, for pain management, for all types of different ailments. And um, I've never had a psychic study prove um, anything real. You know, we have a uh, hypnotist that's in our uh, yeah, <laughs> our Mormon group here, and he's a really cool guy. And we've been talking about doing a reading or doing his thing and and doing a recording. We sh- you, you motivate me uh, to want to do that because he he's a legitimate uh, hypnotist. The pain management stuff, all the stuff right. that you're talking about, he's that that's the type of stuff he's doing. He's not just doing hey, let's make people you know caw like a chicken you know on stage. Right, right, right. And that's why you know hypnotism in and of itself is the occupation of the mind and the ability to have mindfulness, controlled thought, controlled expectations. I mean, I, I mean, I think the point of all this for me, and especially in this context, is. I talk to people every single day who think that religion doesn't matter, who ask me, if you don't like the church, just leave, who ask, you know, why, are, why is religion even important? Um, and, I, and for me, the importance of a discussion like this is showing that, like, religion has a profound effect on our physical bodies, our daily life, the way we interact with the world, we can argue that being Mormon is a form of hypnotism, right? It occupies our brains. It, it makes us mindful of certain things and unmindful of other things. It gives us a path to follow. It allows us a certain type of social cohesion. It, it changes the environment in which our bodies react to things. So I think that just breaking this apart, it, I kind of call it, sometimes I you know, jokingly call my work kind of the science behind the secret or, you know, the science behind all these new age spiritualist traditions. They're not completely off, but I just like to embed a lot of these thoughts in the deeper, richer science behind it. Now, on that point about religion, some of us would argue that uh, although all those things could be true, that similar to homeopathy and some of this other stuff, there's a net negative or a net harm, which is why we leave. And we can find a more healthy, a more, we can find all those other things uh, that are psychologically, emotionally, and otherwise healthy, um, not being a part of 
religion. I absolutely agree. I think that religion in of itself is a unique, a very unique social construct. You'd be hard to find all of the elements of a religion, but you could probably find, you know, 60% of a religion outside of a religion. And if your religion is causing you so much harm, then absolutely it's not good for you. So we haven't talked about the nocebo effect in regard to religions, right? If you're gay oh, and you're growing yeah. up yeah, in a religion. That was what I was yeah. going to say. Yeah. If you're gay and you're growing up in a religion that tells you everything that's natural about your body is wrong, if you're a hermaphrodite, if you are, if you are in any way not a heteronormative, typical white American, presumably male, you are constantly living in a world where you're othered, where your personhood is mitigated and limited, where your agency is even limited. So, you know, it is problematic. It's again, we're back to relativity, right? Dependent on your position, your your religious experience could be enormously harmful. Yeah, and I think there's I think there's a lot of different ways to to buck the narrative in Mormonism where th- this this worthiness. Issue becomes a nocebo. I mean, it 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 could be gay. It it could be lib- masturbation. Well, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be liberal pornography, right? You know, it, sexual, liberal. just general, just healthy uh, sexual response. If you're a male or a female, you, you, you right. mentioned uh, at, at the beginning how difficult it is to speak up in relief society and have a debate. Because you, you're going against the grain. I mean, uh, uh, for other people, that could be, I don't know, maybe for you too, but, but for other people, that could be a nocebo effect. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. People do not pay enough credence to the idea of being an outcast, that it has physical harm. It is enormously problematic. So if you're putting yourself in a position where you're constantly outcast, then you're actually doing more damage than you are doing good. Right. Well, and, and, and I, I mean, I can only speak for, for myself. One of the reasons we left is to, I guess, contribute or to try to facilitate my girls, my daughters in having careers and doing things, having other options. So that, that, that to me is another nocebo effect. If you're afraid that, the, that, that it's going to lead to uh, limited options or one option that's not healthy, that is specifically motherhood and, and marriage and nothing but – I mean, that, that sounds like another nocebo effect to me. Right. It's in, we do create a predicament in our church. And I'll just tell you from my experience, this is not coming from a scientist at all, but is I was raised my whole life to be a good Mormon girl. And that means to obey and to follow the script and to do, you know, everything that is in my like path, but to kind of follow my conscience to follow what I saw were injustices, to kind of do what is right and to, to follow my, you know, you know, light of Christ, you may argue, I had to go against being a good Mormon girl mm-hmm. to follow my desire and my academic dreams and my intellect or what we believe God gave us as our spiritual gifts, right? I had to not be a good Mormon girl, which was the only, you know, measure of validation and approval I've ever been given. And so it's a problematic thing when you set up a structure to where in order to succeed, you have to go against your culture. Most people won't do yeah. that. I, I mean, to, to me, this feels like a good stopping point, but I don't really want to stop because you, <laughs> you, uh, you, you touched on the evolutionary, the, the biological evolutionary uh, 
parts of this before. I, I'm I'm intrigued to hear more about that. Like, so how how did our bodies evolve? Why did our bodies evolve to be able to create this placebo uh, effect where we can we're we're susceptible, we can be manipulated, and it has a real biochemical impact in our bodies. Well, you just made me giddy. This is my favorite topic to talk about in the whole world. But first, here's the professor in me. Scott, I would love for you to kind of explain from your perspective based on that, you know, lecture we just had, kind of how would you answer that question now, now that you've kind of been in that been in that lecture? Oh, so this is a pop quiz. I see how it's, I see how it is. Okay, it's Professor, me being like, did anything I said get through? <laughs> um, to boil it down into a nutshell, I would say you started out talking about how social interactions became evolutionarily became determinative of um, population growth and and success among different organisms. So as as um, pre-human <clears throat> our pre-human ancestors became more social and increased um, their, their social interactions that drove uh, population increases and, and helped us compete for, for resources. Is that okay? Step one. And then step two would be, or, or the next phase would be as we, as we increased in size, the complexity and the, the different um, variations of the social interaction became more varied, which in turn fueled um, things like what we would now consider to be religion or um, I would say superstitions, things like that, and became became advent, advantageous to us to believe in things like placebo effects, not just because of the social interaction, but there's also an actual effect there of of doing things like a rain dance or there's doing something like, uh, uh, you know, some kind of annual ritual at a certain time of the year that that would have an actual impact on our evolutionary success. Yeah. This, this kind of, Good. this kind of blows my theory out of the water because I, I was really hoping that we could come to the conclusion that Lucifer gave Eve a placebo. <laughs> and the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods knowing good and evil. I <laughs> was a joke. I'm making a joke. I'm, I'm, I'm setting up a question I want to ask later, but, but uh, I, I want to hear the, the yes. real... Oh, I'm super impressed. I'm super impressed. So I'm just going to kind of rephrase what he said. He did a great job. So basically, um, what we find is, you know, just, as just our... Social- fix, just fix what I said. Straighten oh, that no, out. You did a great right. job. You he did, did, a, great he job. did a great job, and I'm going to go ahead and do a little bit more. <laughs> As our social groups got bigger and bigger and bigger, what we found, well, you know, what we found is that you can um, cognitively not necessarily believe in your religion or your tribe or some kind of any type of cognitive privilege. But if you're part of the group, your survival rates and the frequency of your genes throughout time increase, right? So it's about fitness, survival and reproduction. So cognitive, um, you know, beliefs, cosmology, theology, there's very little... Um, evolutionary bias that you would succeed at a higher rate if you were a better believer. But what we see is if you were a better social member, if you had higher status, if you were part of the group, there's no question that people that belonged survived and reproduced at higher rates than people that were ostracized from the group. So what we see is that most religions are based on a lot of what we call costly signals 
or like signs that you're part of the group. I wear garments, therefore you can trust me, right? I have a temple recommend, therefore I've lived all of these rules so that I'm at this certain level, right? We're part of the same group, in-group, out-group, fission, fusion, like that most groups throughout time and across history have these enormous boundaries for who belongs and who doesn't. And that is actually this idea of belonging has more fitness consequences than any type of, you know, relative truth claims, right? That that the act of religion in and of itself is a radically social act and that it it leads to survival. So I'm getting too far ahead of myself. Let's go back a little bit. I think it's summed up in the girls camp uh, chant. (laughs) We don't drink and we don't chew and we don't procreate with the guys that do. (laughs) Right? Exactly. Those yeah. guys would not be in the inner circle. They wouldn't be able to reproduce. Yeah. They wouldn't. Exactly. That's really funny. <laughs> oh, that's actually hilarious. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting to the second part of what Scott said first. So what we find is that the human um, brain is much larger than our body, right? And it's much larger than a biped, which is what our ancestors were, could physically give birth to. Human birth is the tightest constriction between the pelvic opening and the brain of almost any species on the earth. So what happens is humans are born too early. We're born too early and we're popped out and then our brain continues to grow for an enormous amount of time, more than any other species. And what that does is it allows our environment to actually imprint on our brain more than any other species, right? Because instead of growing in the womb, we're growing in the world. And it allows for what we call developmental plasticity, which is this idea that our brains and bodies are enormously adaptable. Humans are not the strongest. We're not the bravest. We don't have the sharpest teeth. We don't have the biggest muscles. I mean, in a war between the strongest human in the world and like an adolescent female chimp, the chimp would always win, right? Like we're not that good at stuff. The thing that we're really good at is what we call plasticity, phenotypic plasticity, developmental plasticity, neural plasticity, the ability to adapt to one's environment. So we can live in climates that are so varied that, you know, chimpanzees can't do. We can, you know, occupy different niches. We can adjust our physical body from the color of our skin to our height, to our weight, to our body size, to our neural connections. We, We can actually just completely be malleable to our environment in order to be the most adapted to survive and reproduce at the highest rates. So that ability to be adaptable is genetically in our in our system, right? What we see as we get bigger and bigger and bigger brains is we only become more adaptable, but not only that, we become more dependent. So we're the most adaptable, but we're also the most dependent. A hundred percent of human survival is based in our ability to be taken care of by someone else. And a human infant cannot even cling to its mother, you know, in a, let's say there's a raid. A human infant can do nothing. Right? So 100% of our survival is that we were able to get someone, manipulate a mother or a father to take care of us. And there's about 100 different adaptations that newborns have to manipulate you both emotionally and physiologically to get you to take care of them from their cry, which is one of the pitches. It's the most annoying pitch that you can have that you can't sleep through, that you can't ignore, that forces you to go take care of them and try to stop the cry to the smell of a newborn baby's head, which is enormously addictive and that increases oxytocin. So there's all of these adaptations babies have to get you to take care of them. 
But there's also all these adaptations that human mothers and fathers, and I need to say this for a Mormon audience, which is that men have evolved physiologically to be caregivers. When Mormons say things like, well, women are naturally made for having children, I just want to scream and I want to say the human male has adapted to parent giving. Sexual dimorphism has radically decreased in the human male. His testosterone drops when he becomes a father. He physiologically changes to be a better caregiver. So what we see is that our bodies actually change to take care of others. So that ability, and this is where the crux of it comes down to when we talk about placebo effect and what we call social susceptibility, is the ability to be manipulated, to take care of someone, and to be taken care of or the desire to be taken care of, that doesn't go away as we age. So every time I'm going to a doctor, every time I have a friend, the reason why they can hurt me so bad or make me feel so good is that dependence on my survival, on whether or not you like me or take care of me, that never goes away. And that's why it hurts so bad to be rejected or ostracized or belittled because we feel like, just like an infant would, I might not survive. And that's why it's so powerful. And that that stays with us throughout our lives. Now, that process can be manipulated, right? We can feel super connected. We can get a promotion. We can increase our status. We can fall in love. And we feel like we're on top of the moon. And that's because our reward punishment systems in our body, the biochemical systems, all revolve around this idea that I'm going to reward you for pro-social behavior and I'm going to punish you, biochemically speaking, for anything that's antisocial and that's what allowed you to survive and reproduce over time and we're now paying the consequences of all of those physical symptoms and systems that like force us to try to be social. Chirp, chirp, chirp. <laughs> nah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just thinking I'm glad that we've recorded this. So I can so I can go back and I can listen to it uh, over and over again, catch everything. It, it, it yeah. Does it frustrate you to have concepts that seem very easily grasped? They're, 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 I, I mean, I get so much of this, and, and what you're getting is really I'm it's I'm absorbing it. But it, does it frustrate you that it seems like it's not as understood out there as well as it should be? Okay, two things to that, and I think and thank you for giving me that question. That's really cool. I've never had that. The thing that frustrates me even more than that is if I was a biochemist and I was talking about, you know, organic chemistry or something, no one in the room would try to like debate me. I have two PhDs in this subject, right? Or I'm almost, I'm almost done. No one would be like, oh, well, I think this. But as a professor who studies evolution, I cannot tell you how many people have opinions about evolution that they hold as equivalent to someone with a degree in the sense that no one else in any of the sciences has to deal with, right? I've never seen a physicist debate a lay person on, you know, certain types of, you know, uh, theory, but I have yeah, to, I have to you know, we have to lawyers have to debate lay people all the time about what the law actually says. <laughs> right, and, right. and they have the same it's it they think they the the people experience and the understanding is equivalent. So exactly. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Right. That 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 if you're talking about what frustrates me, I think that's what frustrates me the most is because it's our bodies, because we're human, like we all have opinions, we all think we know, we all want to know, and so you know, often 
the random person's interpretation of evolution is put at the same level as someone who's actually studied it. That's, that's frustrating. Back to your question. I think, I don't think it's frustrating. I think it's fascinating. And this is why, um, I often put anthropologists and comedians in the same genre of life as people who notice things that no one else notices and then brings it to our attention. I think it's crazy and fascinating that we live in this world where all of this stuff's going on and we have no idea. So I I will ask a room of, you know, 2000 people. When was the last time you felt terrible, just terrible? How did you cope with that? What did you do to cope with that? And they think about it. Some were drugs, some was porn, some was food. I went and I had good food. I, some, you know, is alcohol, some is sex, some is exercise. Okay. And then I asked the crowd, who taught you how to do that? And it's just crickets tripping. That we live in this world where every single one of us will face negative feelings like rejection, bullying, ostracism, you know, betrayal regularly. And we do not talk about it. We do not teach each other how to deal with it. We don't teach our children overtly. If your kid came home and said they were bullying to bullied tomorrow, we might deal with the problem. Americans are very good at like calling the principal and talking to the kid. But do we actually sit our kid down and say, what you're experiencing right now is all of these negative social you know, feelings, and that's, that's okay. You're supposed to feel that way. That's from our evolutionary past. But here's how to get rid of those feelings in a healthy way. We don't do that. And I think that's crazy. So how can't let's so that comes to my question that I wanted to hit at the beginning is how some of these emotional and social traumas um, anxiety, the bullying, the heart, heartbreak, um, how that can ultimately be healthy and how we can get over that. You, you talk about that in the blog about that there are, are ways to ac- accomplish that. Right. So when you say um, are ultimately healthy, I wouldn't say healthy. I would say adaptive. I okay. think that that's a more accurate word. And it's because the reason that I feel you know, anxious when I'm speaking in front of a crowd is, you know, and a lot of people who feel anxious feel guilty for feeling anxious or they feel like something's wrong with them. And I want to tell them that is absolutely how you should feel when you're speaking in front of a crowd or people of high status. If you didn't feel anxious, then something would be wrong because, you know, you may lose your whole status. If, if you're speaking in front of a huge crowd and you say something terrible, you know, and a lot of people have learned this, right? If you do something terrible, you're kicked out of the group, you know? So you should feel anxious so that you say good things. If you get broken up with, you should feel terrible, You should feel horrible. Someone just rejected you, right? You might just have lost him and his friends and his group and his family. And it's like you just lost this enormous social connection. You're supposed to feel terrible so that next time you pick someone better or so that you know the consequence of those social connections so that you don't, you know, get lost forever outside of a group so that you find another group. So what I would do is, you know, try to reinforce to people who are feeling these things like depression, anxiety, heartbreak, grief, loss, that that is a natural feeling. If you really look at our evolutionary past and the way that our bodies evolved, that is, you are supposed to feel that way. Then the second thing is instead of just, um, trying to get rid of that feeling, 
you know, with a pill that increases our serotonin, that changes the biochemistry so that we don't feel that anymore. Let's kind of break that situation down, learn from it, figure out how to, you know, experience, you know, something different next time, and then figure out how we coped with that. So some people take a pill, but the vast majority of Americans do a different coping mechanism to change our biochemistry. And I gave you a list of lots of things we do, right? We'll do anything from eating a brownie to masturbating to change our biochemistry. Because mm-hmm. as soon as we change our biochemistry, we feel better. We don't want that negative biochemistry, right? Because our body's mm-hmm. ba- based on this reward punishment circuits. So if I'm feeling negative and I eat a brownie, that's the same thing as in the Pleistocene of, I just got kicked out of my group, but I found a fig tree. So I ate a fig. <laughs> it gives me positive reward circuitries because I just got a high caloric intake you know, item that's going to be good for my health. So that gives me a positive reward cycle. What's happening in the modern world, and excuse my French, but it's completely completely effed up. We have Twinkies now, right? And I could just eat a Twinkie and that has nothing to do with me finding good resources in my life, right? So the modern world has just kind of messed up those reward punishment circuitries. Um, And so I think it's important to kind of reteach kids this. So I deal with a lot of kids when I was working at an eating disorder clinic who did a lot of self-harm. They would cut themselves. They would hurt themselves. And at the time I didn't have the vocabulary for this, but now I do. And what I would tell them is, you know, congratulations. I know this sounds like a weird way to approach self-harm, but you have learned how to turn off that negative, you know, feelings. You've learned how to cope with these terrible feelings of depression, anxiety, um, guilt, shame, etc. And what you did is, you know, you starved yourself and so you could feel numb or you cut yourself so that you would feel acute pain. And acute pain actually occupies the same neural pathways as physical pain, as social pain. So they actually um, numb each other out. So if you're feeling one, you can't physically feel the other. So I would tell them, you know, wow, you figured that out all on your own. Congratulations. You know, don't feel guilty because we often feel guilty for feeling anxious or depressed. Then we feel guilty for how we cope with it. So it's like guilt upon guilt upon guilt. So I would say you're feeling normal for feeling depressed. And in fact, you know what? Good job finding a coping mechanism that worked. But you know what? Overeating is not healthy. We're seeing a lot of, you know, health consequences and side effects of you always eating when you feel depressed or isolating yourself from individuals for long periods of time. That's a good coping mechanism, good job, but now it's not working for you. Or cutting yourself. You know, at the time, that was the only way you knew how to deal with things. And wow, I mean, I'm impressed that you figured that out on your own. It's not going to work for you the rest of your life. So let's figure out healthier coping mechanisms. And I think why that approach is more helpful is it takes away the shame of having the problem in the first place, which we all do. We just don't talk about. And it takes away the shame of the biochemical reactor that we've decided to come up with, which we all do, but we don't talk about. And so we can kind of talk about these things in a more honest way than we typically do. So is there something that's to be said for our society seeking out um, these feelings? So I'm thinking of, you know, horror movies and amusement park rides and, you know, whatever, going to a nudist colony, you know, to, to experience these emotions, these, you know, anxiety and, and fear and, and, you know, sadness to a sad movie and, and real tragic, you know, real, real, real tragic movies. And we, we, we love that stuff. Is there something to be said for us for, for why we seek those out? 
Absolutely. That's a brilliant question. When any, I, whenever I have someone skeptical about kind of this idea of social susceptibility or placebo effects, all I tell them is, tell me about the last movie you went to. Did your heart rate go up? Did you feel excited? Did you feel sad? Did you feel scared? Yes. Then you're manipulable, right? Like we're all manipulable. So, um, Absolutely. One of the reasons why things like movies and fiction and books and music and these types of sought out emotional experiences are actually helpful is it's a, we call it catharsis in the field, that I'm able to experience a traumatic situation that's removed from my traumatic situation. And so I can experience it as um, an outside observer and it's less painful, but then I can heal from what, what I, what happened to me. Right. So part of it is the catharsis of, let's say, someone that's going through PTSD or who has been traumatized in the past, seeing something painful that's happening to someone else and processing it from kind of an outsider, mirror neuron, empathetic way rather than a person centered way is actually very healing. The second reason it's helpful is just what we talked about earlier, is if I'm feeling negative feelings, I can go have some alcohol and numb myself. I can go have some food and get a sugar rush and get some dopamine and oxytocin. I can go make love and, you know, have tons of different chemicals and oxytocin and all this stuff, or I can watch a movie. And as soon as I start the movie and the music and the story and the narrative, or I can read a book, my body will physiologically change and adapt and start producing what we call empathetic mirror neurons, which is I'm putting myself in the place of these characters and experiencing what they're experiencing. And that's why we like it, is it takes us from our normal state to a different state. Music, I assume, is, a, is another one as well. Absolutely. What we see in early religions, like the religion I did, and this is some of the physiological data I, I collected in the field, was they do polyrhythmic drumming, which is really effective. It's actually comes from West Africa where I work and polyrhythmic drumming is basically instead of rhythms, um, kind of aligning and, um, making, you know, harmony, it actually is discordant. It's hard to hear. It's the rhythms don't go together. And the longer you listen to it, the harder it is for your brain to kind of put those rhythms together. And so what happens is your brain kind of turns off. It's, it goes into what a lot of musical therapists call a neurovegetative state. So you go into this like kind of trance-like state because your brain can't keep trying to put the two patterns together rhythmically. And so, you know, I went out and did a lot of research and just measured people before the ritual ceremony, during the ritual ceremony, and after and kind of showed how their bodies will experience through this process of music kind of a relaxation response they feel better after the ceremony they feel more relaxed right they um their body has basically had like a timeout based on this music and i see the same thing when i go to concerts where people's um you you we have both a relaxation response but also an entrainment response which is basically where if i played the same piece of music for 30 seconds all four of us our heartbeats would start to align and we would actually have a spike in oxytocin, which makes us feel closer to each other, more connected. And after this whole long lecture, you would understand why feeling more connected actually increases a lot of positive biochemical responses and we feel happier and better. So music is enormously efficacious at doing that. So what I, what I hear is we as humans really like to be manipulated. We, we seem to like want to push back against that. I'm not manipulated, but we really like it. And we seek towards those things that allow us to be it. And maybe the, maybe the lesson is to embrace it. Right. I don't 
know that I, I, I mean, I don't know that we like it. I think of it more as like, we are, it's a fact of life. Humans are manipulatable. We are super susceptible to our environment. And the fact of life is it's going to hurt us a lot, but we can also find ways to make it, you know, to, to change the situation and make us be manipulated for the good. And I think we just, that's a fact of life. Our bodies are kind of porous, right? They're porous to our environment and we just find ways to deal with that. It's just the problem for me is we don't really talk about it a lot. Hmm. I think that's a great note to end on. Yeah, I still don't want to end, but I know I need to. Because now I'm thinking... How, like, like, how do you go to church every Sunday and hear stories? You know, I, I made the joke about Adam and Eve, you know, but there, there, there's almost a requirement in Mormonism for, for literal acceptance of the mythology and almost no room for the, the type of studies that you do on evolutionary biology, and right. like that was one of the things that was just so grating on me. Uh, maybe like these drums in Africa, that instead of making me turn my brain off, I just took off. I just left. Right. Yeah. But I mean, how? I, I don't. How, how do you reconcile that? It's a great question. Yeah, I know. You know, when I first was doing <laughs> evolutionary stuff, I actually was the second student. I kept reading stuff about evolution. I just kept thinking, oh, my gosh, our Mormon God is so smart. (laughs) And I just kept thinking, you know, the process of evolution in itself, for me, felt so much more miraculous than just the the tiny, tiny things that had to happen on this planet to even have oxygen, right? The tiny things that had to happen to have a frontal lobe. Like, I mean, it's in unbelievable how how complex evolution is that I actually felt a sense of awe that gave me kind of a numinous experience. So my first experience with evolution, it was actually quite numinous, um, you know, but it was so hard to go to the temple and watch the video. So, um, cause, cause that makes you an outsider. I right, mean, it, it, right. even the appreciation of the, the minute detail that went into existence, whether you ascribe that to a God or not, that, right. that puts you in an outsider position at, at church where Adam and Eve is the expected, you know, narrative for that. Right. Although I was always a good, um, and I wouldn't say good historian, there's good historians out there, but I was always a good student of Mormon history. So even when I was experienced that, I had read Orson Pratt, I had read Talmadge, I had read B.H. Roberts, I knew what they thought about evolution. So it was never a um, zero-sum problem for me where I thought, if I'm believing in evolution, I can't be Mormon, right? Because I had known these great scholars who had very complex ideas about, you know, proto-humans, pre-humans, evolutionary theory that were Mormon. But you're still swimming upstream. I'm still swimming upstream, and I could never, and here's the key, I could never have these conversations with anyone in my immediate or extended families or church family, and that's problematic. Yeah, because then you don't have that social cohesiveness that we crave. Exactly. I think you bring up a really good part of your question, and maybe this is a good way to end on it, but... um, 
the question often becomes, okay, so you're not a literal believer. You, you know, you have more of a appreciation for religion, but how do you deal with the day-to-day, you know, lived experience of being Mormon, which is very literal or nothing, right? You know, cafeteria Mormonism. And I think it comes back to this experience of being in Africa of like, you know, I had to learn to appreciate and understand and give respect to the, you know, the real experiences of these witches I was living with, of these healers I was living with. And I couldn't belittle their experience or say that they weren't doing what they said they were doing. And when I was going through my period of learning a lot of intellectual problems about the church and kind of losing my faith, I was angry, right? I think a lot of us are had a lot of betrayal to the church that I felt like you lied to me. And in some cases, you know, I was raised by a CES dad who in some cases did lie to me, right, in order to protect me for some historical problems. And and, and I was kind of harsh at the church for a for while. For pulling the millipedes <laughs> out of you. and uh, right. Exactly. I was kind of harsh at the church, like, you betrayed, you're my people and you lied to me, right? Or or you're not what you claimed to be. Um, and I think my approach today is much more um, like I would the people I study, which is I will never belittle someone else's spiritual experience, right? I will never belittle someone else's hope and belief in some kind of absolute or literal truth. I understand it. I can value it. I can see what, what value it gives to that person. And, you know, me validating that, you know, does not necessarily negate my own experience or, or the fact that I found that maybe I don't have this absolute or literal truth does not negate the efficacious experience of being Mormon and raised Mormon and all those 32 years I've had in my culture with my people, you know, of belonging, um, no truth claim can take that away. So I, I think that's how I approach church today. Today. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But you also are actively working towards changing things and making things better as it relates to gender equality and those types of things. So right. it's not just an embrace saying, oh, whatever will be will be and let's just appreciate it for what it is. You're still agitating from within and saying, but it can even be better. Is, right. is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that, um, you know, as someone who does a lot of humanitarian aid, global feminism, you know, human rights, I think I just discovered that I can go to Africa all I want and tell people to change their lifestyle. But if I can't do it in my own culture, then I'm a hypocrite, you know, and it is harder. It is harder among your own people where you're going to get a letter from an aunt or a grandma that tells you you're a bad person. Like it's harder. It's harder in your community where you're not get allowed to have a calling or, or to talk to certain people or, you know, it, it, it is harder in your own community. But I just felt like if I can't do the things that I want to change around the world with my own people, then what am I doing? Yeah. Right. All right. Well, I'll, I'll end it there. And I stopped recording and now come on. <laughs> but, but I like, don't care if you record. I'm super no, honest. I'll I, just no, I, I, I know, but, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want, but thankfully, Scott kept recording, so we were able to salvage this conversation, which uh, I think is really good. So here we go. Like, if, if you're out and you're, you're drinking shots with Scott, <laughs> and you're not wearing your garments, and, right. like, there's, there's things that you're participating in. I mean, like, there's, there's a level of belief and a level of not. So it's the, it's, it's the social 
efficacy of being in, even though it's kind of part in, not all in? Right. And that's changed over time. Like I will say publicly, I have no idea where I'm at right now. Yeah. So, well, I, like I said, I'm, ago, I'm not recording. So this no, is, no, no worries. I don't yeah. even, I don't yeah. even care if you do. Cause I, yeah. I'm very honest. But yeah. Six months ago I had a temple recommend and I had a calling and you know, I, I haven't believed in 10 years, but it's been a progress. So, oh, but I, I don't believe, but it's the social part, right? But then I go to a ward, and, and this is more, you know, insider information, but I go to a ward where I wear pants, and I start LDS Wave, and I get released from my calling, got called into my state president, got called into my bishop, received hate mail from people in the ward. Um, you know, it was a terrible experience, and here I was staying Mormon for the social experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm experiencing ostracism, you know, on a daily basis. So that's not working. Then I think, well, if I stay, but and if it's bad and I just make it better, then it's worth staying. Well, how many years have I tried to make it better? People think ordained women's like the end all be all. No, we've been doing this for 40 years. We've done countless campaigns. We've written letters. We've gone to leaders. We've done petitions. We've done demonstrations. I mean, we've done stuff for years and nothing's changed. So... Why do you say, you know, so I don't know. My whole path has been really up and down and I finally just decided I'm going to, you know, make my own decisions regardless of the culture. You know, I, I was actually being, I had a state president that said to me, I always tell people they need to align their beliefs with their actions. And I really want to make sure you're doing that. And I said, flat out, you do not want to give me that advice. I haven't believed in years, <laughs> but I've never broken a rule in my life. So that's actually really bad advice for me. So, yeah, I felt like I couldn't. And here's the sad part, right? I felt like I couldn't be legitimate if I wasn't the perfect Mormon. I couldn't have a legitimate voice in the community. And I was keeping all the rules mm, right. yeah, in yeah. order to be seen as someone that people can respect. Right. Yeah. And to be a full member of my community, regardless of whether I wanted to or believed them. And I and I had a big realization, you know, a little bit ago of my biggest regrets in life are not things that I, you know, did. It's things that I didn't do. It's not being honest with myself. Uh, it was following the culture for other people. So is is that kind of a nocebo for you, the 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 perfect Mormon girl narrative script. Yeah, that's a good point. I never fit. Right. So I was constantly, you know, I was five years old when my dad said, you know, women's issues. And I was like, I wanted to be president of the United States. And he said, no, you can't, your husband can, but you have to be with the kids. And I said, Oh, I don't want that. That sucks. I was five years old. <laughs> you know, I was 10 years old when we went to West Side Story and I said, Dad, I'm in love with Chico. I want to marry Chico. And he said, We can't marry people of other races. And I was like, <laughs> Wait a second. That's not right. Right? Like, I never fit. I never fit. <laughs> and not fitting was very painful. Yeah, but you've embraced it now. I'm trying. I mean, okay. I don't know. I could, like, go back tomorrow. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. Well, but I mean, even even going back, you would, you 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 would have this identity that you recognize and understand of yourself as not fitting in. Right. right? I mean, like you wouldn't be disingenuous and try to right. fit in. You'd you'd still be 
swimming upstream, but you'd be more comfortable with it, uh, the, the awareness of it. I, I'm guessing. I don't know. Right, 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 right. I was still yeah. trapped in the cultural script. So yeah. I often get mad at myself that I didn't just have experience I wanted to have. You know, I didn't date anyone because I was so afraid of making like a sexual faux pas and having to go talk to my bishop. And I look back and I'm like mad at myself. Like I never developed, you know, healthy sexuality in this way. But then I think about it. Had I tried that at 16 to 22, I would have been miserable. I would have gone into the bishop and been terrible and felt guilty and shameful, you know, because I was still in that stream that you call it. You know, I was still in that, that mental model. Yeah, so, um, I, I was I was pretty good, too. But I mean, I, I pushed the boundaries on that a little bit. And you know how humans are really easy to, to manipulate. Right. You're pretty good with self-deception as well. And <laughs> you, you just just numb yourself of that guilt over time. I think I don't know. I think some people are better, better at it than others. I had a girl yeah. actually in that eating disorder clinic who had numbed herself, had you know, had anorexia to the point where she wasn't eating anything so that she couldn't have feelings. Mm. She felt so guilty for having had sex with her boyfriend. And her parents had to like take out a second mortgage on their home to get her into this, you know, residential treatment facility and all this stuff. And it was like the quickest recovery we've ever seen when she was finally able to like admit it, talk to a bishop, get forgiven of it and get over it. She never had, she didn't have to numb herself every day because she felt so guilty. And it's like, you know, some people, I think, are able to better uh, – here's a fascinating concept, right? They're better able to internally stimulate a placebo effect than others. Like others need the bishop telling them they're okay, and some people are like, I'm fine. I don't need the bishop to tell me what's right, and that's a fascinating concept, right? <laughs> yeah, that was me, yeah. And surprisingly, high percentage of Mormons, BYU has the highest rate of eating disorders among young women. Like, I mean, we have some real physical – nocebo trauma to you know being women hmm. yeah no doubt wow what do you attribute that to we have this we have highest rates of plastic surgery highest rates of um, depression medication right. and highest rates of eating disorders in the nation um i attribute that to a powerless society where we're unable to gain prestige in any way but our physical bodies so i can go get seven PhDs and become a multimillionaire and I will still not be looked highly upon in my society as if I had a perfect body and was beautiful. And eight kids. As a Mormon woman, yes. Right, yes, right, yes, right, yes, right, yes. right. And married to, and married to the state president, right? right, right. right so, yeah. so my prestige level that I can control is, and this is only our generation. I mean, our mothers, think about our mothers. None of our mothers were getting boob jobs, right? It, it's this younger generation. Um, but yeah, the only prestige I can control that's not in my husband's career or, you know, sure body, yeah. my body. Yeah. Mm. And I think I mean, people don't talk about it a lot, but I think that it has to do with sex as well. Mormon women have really messed up sex a lot of times uh, or, or relationship to their own sexual. Yeah. And I think you can, well, you, know, you contribute to that, uh, the, the guys are messed up in their own bodies as well and sexuality and you bring that to together and it's a perfect storm of, I don't know, destruction. I don't know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, All thanks right. Chelsea. This was great. Yeah, yeah that was, was really great. Great stuff. Oh, that's so fun talking, man. We could talk forever. Yeah. yeah. So rambling, maybe we'll do like a part two or clarification or something. Uh, we, yeah. we, 
I, there, there might be, I think there's stuff to explore, definitely. So, yeah. so be honest. Some of the better questions you've gotten from this group than other podcasts? Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's funny. I mean, you probably haven't listened to, to, to our stuff much, but you, you, don't, you don't say, uh, pardon my French, and then just say F. F. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, I almost said fuck, but then I felt bad. I didn't know exactly no, this was, the listener this was. Was. Maybe the first episode in a long time that we haven't dropped the f bomb. Okay, good. Our last one. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. We, it averages we, out. We could do three more without. <laughs> oh um, yeah, we are we are explicit. Okay, good, not, good. Not, okay, I'll feel more comfortable then. But yeah. Well, ask Scott. Um, so what I typically get is there's a guy at this Arizona thing that just wanted to kind of. Yeah, there was like what, what one a like? hole there. He like was trying so. to put me in his place and like be like i've read more than you and but just kind of devil's advocate type of thing and that i like have a really hard time with because i'm like if you genuinely disagree with me awesome let's talk about it let's get down to the nitty-gritty if you're just disagreeing just to sound smart or to hear your own voice i'm annoyed right yeah so who was it scott I'd, I'd never met the guy before but oh really he was yeah he was a jerk though yeah but he's not a regular Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know who it was. He was just—he was, yeah. He was a jerk. So, <laughs> so Scott, I really did stop recording when I said, "Did you keep recording?" Yeah, I, I always have mine on. Sweet. Okay, because because <laughs> some of that was really good stuff. So you you don't yeah. mind if any of that gets used? No, 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 no. I'm yeah. very open, so right. whatever. Okay. The only the only difference is, Glenn, in my recording is I'm is I'm always muting my my side on Skype, uh-huh. but I might be like burping on the mic on the recording. <laughs> So yeah, burping or oh, or whatever. I, I could be doing yeah, I could be doing anything almost here. anything. Yeah, you don't know. Yeah, but uh, I but I, I've got ways to get rid of that. Yeah, I know. I know. So if, you want, if you want to clip the later part for mine, then yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Put it put, put it up. And, um, I, will. I will. And he did. So. That wraps up parts one and two. Now, if you have any questions and you want to discuss them with Chelsea, she's going to be checking our website, infantsonthrones.com. So ask your questions there and she'll respond. But only if it's a really, really good question. And I think those may be a little hard to come by. So, eh, roll the dice. But she also said that she'd be willing to come back and discuss this further. So if there is something else that you'd like to hear from Chelsea, just let us know. Until then... Anyone for the closing prayer? Medicine man, dancing across the country. Hi, my name's Bob, and I live in West Jordan, Utah. I like to listen to Infants on Thrones as I take long walks around my neighborhood. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.